and welcome to Deep North. My name is Eric Pomerinke, and we are joined today in the studio by Iceland Review editor Greta Sigurður Einarsdóttir. We're going to be revisiting her 2022 piece, In the Ranger's Realm. What does a ranger do exactly? According to the tan and charmingly scruffy specimen sitting opposite me at a cafe in the city center, just back from the mountains, the title is self-explanatory. It's a job in environment protection. That's what the Icelandic word for ranger, landvörður, means. We're protecting the land, we're its guardians. Rangers safeguard Iceland's fragile nature and the people who visit its remote fishing villages, tourist attractions and mountainous wilderness. While their quotidian duties involve picking up trash, maintaining trails and having a sharp word or two with travelers who stray off them, a ranger's work is so much more. They have to be prepared for every eventuality and able to respond to all situations that arise far from the city limits. These are the people who take it upon themselves to ensure Iceland's virtually untouched nature stays that way. The road less traveled, the Westfjords. Dagur Jonsson drives a white pickup emblazoned with the Environment Agency's logo. It's probably the least practical color for a ranger's vehicle, but at the end of the day, any color would end up covered in a thick brown layer of dust and mud from the winding roads of the Westfjords. We climb into the pickup to find out what a ranger does in a day. I have to stop at Dinjante first, but afterwards we can pretty much go where we want, he says. Even in summer, the roads in the Westfjords require careful driving. Still, you don't need a 4x4 to get to the region's most popular attractions, like the layered steps of the Dinjante waterfall. On the way there, Dagur points out notable trails and rivers. An avid angler and hunter, he appreciates the area's natural beauty, but also its bounty. The worst insult the locals can imagine is for me to be an environmentalist from Reykjavik who wants to keep this place frozen in time. But I grew up in the Westman Islands, hunting and fishing. A printer by trade, Dagur noticed that there were fewer and fewer jobs in his profession. He started looking for something else to do and settled on studying systems analysis. I hated it. Still finished the course though, he says, as the pickup weaves its way up the hill. He'd always been an outdoorsy type. He spent decades with his local search and rescue squad, besides hiking, biking, fishing and hunting every summer. Faced with the prospect of looking for a job in a field he actively disliked, it was a major relief when he ran into an old friend who suggested he become a ranger instead. I applied to work at Lautrabjarg, and here I am, four years later. Rangers' official duties include taking care of facilities, picking up trash at the most visited destinations, and guiding travelers on scheduled hikes. That's only a fraction of what they do, however. A lot of their time is spent dealing with whatever situations may arise on location such as making sure people aren't endangering themselves or the environment. The picturesque Dinjante waterfall is a favorite for travel photoshoots, and many visitors cross the ropes intended to protect the delicate flora. 
when a running team in full costume charges off the path, trampling rocks and moss alike on a quest to capture the perfect press photo, Dagur puts a stop to it. They all say the same thing, he laments as he returns, the runners looking suitably chastened. They say, it's just so beautiful, as if that's a reason to damage it. Not far from Dynjandi, Dagur mentions, there's a ravine filled with fossils and a couple of other waterfalls that all get understandably less attention because of their proximity to the steps of gushing water that make for the perfect photo. Dynjandi isn't even really a waterfall, Dagur chimes in. It's just a stream flowing down a hill. When asked if he has a favorite location in his territory, Dagur thinks for a while. It's got to be Lauterbjerg. Growing up in the Westman Islands, he learned to descend bird cliffs to collect eggs at a young age. He does so regularly with his search and rescue squad on the Reykjanes Peninsula, but descending the Lauterbjerg cliff is a whole other animal. I ask if we could go there, but Dagur rejects the idea. Maybe if you had mentioned it yesterday, it's too far to go there today. My hopes of a trip to the cliff are dashed. Dagur returns to his duties, plucking cigarette butts from the path along the waterfall. The nicotine pouches are everywhere. I wander off for a bit while the photographer documents the waterfall, the din drowning out the shrieks of the seabirds that populate every cliff and fjord of the region. A light breeze stirs up the fresh scent of ling. The pink buds have yet to mature into bilberries, so I reach down to pluck a few leaves of mountain sorrel instead. As I savor their tart freshness, Dagur returns, the path now cleared of all foreign objects. We share the view over Arnarfjörður fjord in comfortable silence. It doesn't get much better than this, Dagur finally says. A short moment later, he glances over at me. So you really want to see the cliff? A couple of hours and about 125 kilometers later, the white pickup has become a deep shade of brown. The road is not particularly rocky, but it zigzags up and down the sides of the westward steep and flat-topped mountains in the most unusual ways. There is limited lowland between the mountains and the sea, and most of it is taken up by pale yellow beaches, the impossibly clear water lapping at the rocks that hold up the road. Dagur isn't a local here, but as he spouts anecdotes about the people inhabiting the farms along the way, he could have fooled me. The anecdotes and the farms are fewer and fewer as we approach the cliff. We're almost there when the fog starts to settle in. I exchange worried glances with the photographer, both of us silently hoping that we haven't driven all this way only to have the view obscured. But just before we arrive, the air clears and the immense magnitude of Lauterberg spreads before our eyes. Everyone wants to see the puffins, Dagur exclaims as we pass a few of the comical black and white birds calmly perched on the cliff's edge, not in the least perturbed by us strolling right by them. These ones are pretty old, Dagur notes. I ask him how he knows, and he sighs. Oh, you can tell by the beak. He rattles off the names of the various seabirds that make their home on the 400-meter-high cliff facing an extraordinary amount of horizon. Then he halts suddenly, looking up towards land. Did you hear the fox? I did not, and probably wouldn't have known if I had. We listen for a while until it starts calling again. That's a female fox. You can tell by the way they shriek. 
Dagur explains patiently. At Lauterbjerg, one of Dagur's recurring tasks is talking courage into tourists who've managed to drive out to see the cliff, but have to be coaxed into driving back up the steep, winding dirt road. A part of a ranger's duties is keeping the people visiting their territory safe. The Lauterbjerg cliff is steep, and the path along the edge has no barriers between visitors and a drop of up to 400 meters. In light of recent news coverage about tourist safety in Iceland, I ask about accidents. Oh, there hasn't been a fatality here since, I don't know, 2014? The hotspot, the south coast. It's a few days later, and we're leaving the city again, this time for the south coast. There's a little more traffic here. Most travelers who venture out of Reykjavik hit the waterfall dotted south. We're meeting our next ranger by the lighthouse on Dyrhólaey. A means island, but Dyrhólaey is no longer surrounded by water. A lighthouse towers over the surrounding flatness, a bright contrast to the sandy black beaches. The promontory's cliffs are a lot lower than Lauterbjerg, but they're nevertheless home to a plethora of puffins. It's the only bird they want to see, Guðrún Úlvarsdóttir tells me. The tourists arriving in Dyrhóle in droves are a different breed to the adventurers and hikers in the Westfjords. I think the people coming here are the ones who prefer a little more comfort in their travels, she says delicately. While Dagur racks up the mileage on his pickup, Guðrún's territory is limited to the hills of Dyrhóle and the nearby Skóafoss waterfall. It's a much visited area and the rangers on duty must ensure it's safe and enjoyable. To the east of Dyrhólaey, a stretch of black beach is cordoned off. It has the same waves as Reynisfjara, so we make sure no one goes there, Guðrún tells us. The black beach of Reynisfjara, another popular Instagram spot, has made grim headlines in recent years. While the waves lapping the shore look small, there's a steep drop-off a few meters out that creates a suction effect that can and has claimed lives. There are a plethora of signs at the beach, but no rangers. Reynisfjara isn't protected. It's out of our jurisdiction, Guðrún explains. Rangers can only operate within regions that have been declared nature reserves, and such designations are subject to much bureaucracy and the heavy dose of politics. While most of her work revolves around talking to visitors and getting them interested in some of the other birds that frequent the rocks, Guðrún has her share of unexpected tasks too. I spent yesterday lugging building materials into the highlands by helicopter, she tells me. Today's travels have her going into town to get oil for the car. A chain fencing off the delicate grass on the promontory is an aesthetically pleasing rust colour, blending in with the surroundings as naturally as possible. It's pretty, isn't it? Guðrún says. Only problem with the rust is that it's not very durable. She keeps her pockets full of zip ties at all times to mend it. Much of Gudrun's work revolves around aiding visitors to the area and ensuring they don't endanger themselves or the region's bird life. During the nesting season in spring, we close off the area at night. It takes a while to make sure no one is up there and diverse traffic from there. Much like Dynjandi or the Lautrabjörg cliff, Dyrhólaey is perfect for photography. 
We get a lot of bridal shoots here, Guðrún says. The issue with that is they don't want fences in their pictures, so they often try to climb over them. On a particularly picturesque spot overlooking the black beach below, however, the fence has been taken down. We did that on purpose, actually, Guðrún says. It's much safer for people to stand on the edge here than if they try it a little further. The drop here is only two meters or so, not 20. Conditions change over time, making it even more challenging to keep visitors safe. On Dirhole, there is an older path closer to the cliff's edge. We're trying to get the old path grown over, Guðrún explains. The cliff's edges are deceptively fragile. It's only been a few years since a couple died a little further down the beach, the cliff crumbling underneath them as they ventured off the path and one step too close to the edge. Dirhule is a popular destination all year round, and there's a ranger here even in winter. This is Gudrun's summer job. She's studying geography at the University of Iceland. Before she started the course, she was studying computer science. I like the coding part, she tells me. The people, the culture and the prospective jobs were less interesting to me. Mountain Man. The Highland. Guðmundur Björsson just got back from the Central Highland. He works there for two weeks at a time. The internet is patchy and the phone signal is weak. Guðmundur spends his days mostly with hikers, hot caretakers, search and rescue volunteers and other rangers. He prefers it that way. I used to work as a chef, Guðmundur tells me. He remembers the exact moment when he had had enough of fine restaurants and exclusive countryside lodges. I was working as a chef in a fishing lodge when these guides came in. They were ordinary and irritated, complaining about the food, the weather and everything else they could think of. I thought to myself, you get to spend the day out in nature, fishing, something people pay astronomical sums to do, and you have the nerve to complain about the weather? Two days later, he told his boss he had signed up for a course in adventure guiding and he was quitting. After finishing his studies, Guðmundur realized he wasn't cut out for working as a guide either. Telling the same stories over and over again, repeating the same jokes. Finding work as a ranger was a fortuitous coincidence. That was four years ago and so far Guðmundur hasn't looked back. Fjallabak is a 42,000 hectare territory with mountain roads, hiking trails, biking paths and geothermal areas. Most notably, it's where you set off for Iceland's most popular hiking trail, Laugavegur. Protecting nature might be in his job title, but much of his time is spent protecting people from the weather and themselves. 90-95% to of the work revolves around information, gathering information and disseminating it to visitors. We follow the weather forecast, monitor the state of the roads and trails in our territory and evaluate the danger involved in fording rivers each particular day. Information is what many prospective hikers lack. I've often had to turn people back, people who didn't have the right equipment. In these conditions, cotton kills. If I see a person about to set off for the Laugavegur hiking trails in sweatpants and sneakers, I start hearing warning bells immediately. In Iceland's mountains, the only dangerous predator is the weather. 
unprepared travelers are not just a danger to themselves, as Guðmundur explains. If you put yourself in danger, it means that others will likely have to endanger themselves to rescue you. In the nature reserve, there are no farmers or local inhabitants. It's just Guðmundur, another ranger on one shift, the mountain hut caretakers, the people who run the last stop grocery store, and the search and rescue volunteers stationed there for a week at a time. These are the handful of people tasked with keeping visitors safe. We're a tight-knit group. We have to be, we have no one else to rely on. There's a lot to do and not a lot of people to do it. We have to hike the trails, mark them, maintain the paths. We hike five kilometers one day just to put up a closed sign so other people don't go there. We need to get that information, that little sign, out into the snow or the patch of ground where it serves its purpose. It's physical work, but I love it. Each day might start with a list of tasks, but things always come up. Sometimes you work full speed all day without getting to anything on your list, Gwimter says. Much of the work is shaped by the remoteness and the dearth of people. You often need to improvise with the resources you have on hand. You might find yourself several kilometers from your supplies in desperate need of a hammer. In those situations, you just have to find a rock that does the job. Mostly, it's important to be available, know the area, and ensure everyone is safe. Sometimes it's just a matter of stepping out into the water and reaching out your hand to someone too scared to ford the river, just to show them that it isn't dangerous. It feels counterintuitive, but despite the remoteness and isolation, the largest part of the work is communication. It can be frustrating to deal with people who cross the line. Rangers tend to care deeply for the territory they're tasked with guarding. We're working full-time all day to protect the environment. When people misbehave in ways that can damage nature, it can be mentally draining. Especially when you're repeating the same warnings over and over, just with a different weather forecast. Guðmundur appreciates the places he's gotten to experience during his time as a ranger. It's a perk of my job, the closeness to the natural beauty, and experiencing it for yourself. I'm not working as a ranger for the money. I enjoy being there. We live in a magnificent country filled with incomparable natural wonders, completely different to anywhere else on the planet. Fjallabak has wondrous geothermal activity and the largest rhyolite formations in the country, which give it amazing colors. And that's just one spot. There are so many others. I don't even know where to begin. And that's just one spot. There are so many others. I don't even know where to begin. Fjallarárgljúfur, Ásbyrgi, Mývat. They're all unique. Well, thank you for sharing the piece today, Greta. You're welcome. Uh, so you were recently in the Highland, weren't you? I was. I drove the Springjusandi road with a stop in the Nýjadalurhatt and Laugafellskáli. Wow. Yeah, it was pretty good. Had some great weather along the way as well. But that is a route that we did need some uh, local information on while we were there because there are lots of rivers to ford and... You need to know if, uh, you know, it's been raining in the area beforehand, if uh, it's been sunny for weeks beforehand, which makes the glaciers melt more, so the rivers are, have more water in them. Mm. Luckily for us, there was little water in the rivers and we could ford them all easily, but 
yeah, that's the sort of questions you have to ask the people in the huts and the rangers. Yeah, you know, even if you are very well prepared, there is still a lot of just like very localized knowledge mm-hmm. uh, with nature here. You know, I mean, like for instance, um, even if you have a pretty good car with four by four, for instance, uh, there are certain rivers that you know at certain times of the year might be very easily fordable, mm. but then you know maybe earlier or later in the summer, for one reason or another, they aren't. Yeah. Um, very often, I think one of the better solutions is to just ask a local, "Hey, will my car make it over this river?" <laughs> yeah, definitely. And I mean, you have to, even the locals who are experienced um, drivers and have all these have been driving around the highlands for a while, they only know the general stuff. Then you have to, for the specific time point you're traveling, you need to ask someone who is there looking at it. Mm. Just like the roads, are they going to be, you know, rocky and hard to traverse? Is there, are there any places where um, they've, you know, fallen away for a bit when you're in the highlands? I mean, the roads aren't serviced like Route 1. You have to... Uh, just uh, drive over what's there and and the rangers uh, have that information. Also with the hiking, um, just like what's the route like? Is it slippery? Are the trails, you know, in peak condition or or will I have to watch my feet? Yep. Um, Is the weather going to kill me today? (laughs) (laughs) You know, something that I was thinking about is that I don't think that I've ever actually seen a ranger at work. Whenever I've visited like one of the major tourist sites or just been out hiking or anything like that. And, you know, it is such important work, but, you know, I mean, I guess I was just kind of thinking about how a lot of the work is, you know, literally invisible. Like we don't see Mm -hmm. it being done. And in that way, we might not kind of really appreciate what some of these people are doing to maintain the infrastructure to some of these really beautiful nature areas. Yeah. I mean, they also just like keep the bathrooms there clean. <laughs> and that's uh, yes. <laughs> an invisible part of the job that uh, it's very much appreciated, but, uh, or perhaps underappreciated. Yeah, I mean, there are even some rangers in Reykjavik. Mm. There are plenty of protected natural um, places in Reykjavik. Yeah. And so there is a kind of special ranger school with a kind of course of training, right? Yeah, so there are a couple of ways you can do it. If you are studying uh, something in the university related to geography or or, uh, geology, um, there's a course you can take that will give you the ranger license, but there's also a specific course run by the Environment Agency. Mm. And last year, at least, it was uh, the places in the course were filled up in a matter of minutes. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, I imagine for many people it's rather a dream job, actually. Yeah, it is. I mean, you spend the summer out in Iceland's highlands or at least somewhere uh, that's pretty enough to be considered a a protected uh, natural area. Um, And... Yeah, I mean, for some people it might sound like a nightmare, but for a lot of people it's it's a dream job. Well, so this is uh, kind of a basic question, but uh, how many rangers are like working part-time or seasonal work? How many kind of year-round rangers are there? Because I imagine there is still a need for 
kind of off-season rangers at a lot of the big sites. Yeah, so for the Highlands, of course, they're just closed. The roads are closed there over the winter, and you can't really go there. So all the Highland rangers are summer jobs. And actually, uh, most of them are, but in places that are, uh, you know, popular year-round destinations, such as Tirolei, uh, and I believe in uh, the Reykjö area as well, they have some f- in, uh, full-time jobs. For a lot of people, uh, they just have something else to do in winter. They might be, you know, working as musicians or artists. They might be in school. They just might sa- have some other job they return to. Yep. But, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a highly sought-after position. And there is this kind of, um, I don't know, uh, bureaucratic paradox maybe where in some ways the places where they're needed the most uh, sometimes like aren't actually where the rangers are because a lot of this has to do with, you know, what is the land classified as? Is it privately owned? Yes. Is it a national park? You know, off the top of my head, uh, two notable uh, fatalities recently in Iceland uh, were at Glimur, um, and then I believe Kirkjufet was maybe in fall of last year. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a hiker that unfortunately uh, fell, um, and so you know Kirkjufet both of those. Kirkjufet has been a site of, of uh, some fatalities in the past because it's a yeah. very dangerous hike. Uh, yes, and Reynifjara, of course, as mentioned in the article, yeah. Um, yeah. isn't a protective natural area. And you'd be surprised there are some like different levels of protection mm. appointed, the highest one being like a natural park, national park. Um, and there are also just like several different agencies and uh, institutions that employ uh, rangers. Yeah. So National Park at Thinkvetler employs rangers, the Environment Agency, and, oh, I believe I'm missing one. But uh, there have been some suggestions to change this uh, within the environment ministry. Uh, so let's hope they're trying to clear up um, those difficulties. But yeah, um, there's also just like the places, some of the peop- places that are the most popular aren't uh, protected, yeah. such as Rennesfera. And even the Geysir geothermal area with the erupting hot springs uh, was only protected a couple of years ago, even though it's been a tourist attraction since the early 1900s. And that does, I mean, that does present some difficulties for rangers. Of course, they have a very large uh, territory, many of them, so it's not like they can be everywhere at once, you know, making sure uh, no one is, you know, driving off the road or, or uh, doing anything they shouldn't be. But, you know, they keep an eye on things. They make sure um, uh, people have the necessary information. It is always striking to me um, how, you know, and of course, uh, you know, uh, I guess being in media uh, kind of predisposes you to being um, more aware of these things. But, you know, I feel like there's so much messaging about how to be safe while hiking in Iceland. Mm. And I feel like whenever I'm out uh, in the countryside, 
on a hike or backpacking or camping, I'm always struck by how unprepared many people choose to be. Uh, I mean, like for instance, uh, last summer I was uh, doing Film for the House, uh, which is only a one day hike, uh, but it's pretty intense and it goes over some pretty rugged terrain and you know, there's some pretty steep drops. And mm -hmm. I mean, it's definitely the kind of thing that you want good boots and uh, just like all the, all the gear for. Um, and it is just always really wild to me how you do actually see people in sneakers and sweatpants out in pretty rugged areas. And, um, you know, I mean, I guess maybe my question is just, uh, like how can we ever kind of reach everyone to like really inform everyone? And like I mean, we've been trying for a while and we definitely won't ever be able to reach everyone. Um, it's, I mean, it's so easy to sort of shake your head at these people because uh, they, I mean, they are not only endangering themselves, they are also uh, endangering others who would be required to, you know, go get them if they get lost. Yep. Uh, and might I remind you that the search and rescue teams in Iceland are, uh, vol it, it's all volunteer work. Yes. So these are people who will have to take off work and go driving to the highlands to get you uh in their own time. But if you think about it, I mean, I don't know how to travel safely in Morocco. Sure. Yeah. So, and just a good example of this is the uh, eruption um, where people are trying really hard to get all the necessary safety information to travelers who are all understandably excited to see a live volcanic eruption. But, uh, you know, in many countries, they put up a lot of fences around uh, natural sites that might present danger. So people coming from there might assume that if there's no fence, there's no danger. In Iceland, we've gone a different route. We've tried to provide information on danger uh, instead of putting up fences and instead of placing guards at dangerous places. So maybe that's just a difference in p what people are used to. But also it's just the... Like, I am well aware that weather might be dangerous and you might die from exposure if you're out in the cold. And I'm well aware that traveling over mountains is dangerous and fording rivers. And I've known, you know, it's when I learned to drive, they mention, you know, how to drive over rivers as well. Mm. But if you're learning to drive in, you know, some city in Europe, I don't know if they teach you that necessarily. And also... Certainly not. <laughs> another example from the eruption, because that has caused some brush fires as well mm. and the smoke has as um you know is is it's hard to breathe around that area when there's plenty of brush fires but that's something you know that i i'm not really aware like i know that smoke is dangerous but you know wildfire smoke isn't a danger that i have been made aware of continuously throughout my childhood such yep. so as uh, our coworker who grew up in canada who was very aware of the danger that wildfire smoke post. Yeah, I mean, when I think about uh, some of the large American parks, like Yellowstone and Yosemite, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, I guess just one of the first thing that comes to mind is how American culture can be very litigious. Uh, a lot of, you know, what look like frivolous lawsuits uh, to the outside world. Mm. Um, and so, you know, like in one way, I think that a lot of this safety culture comes from that. 
But, you know, I mean, also just at a very practical level, uh, there is, you know, I mean, if there isn't so much a culture of kind of putting fences around everything in Iceland, I mean, it's also just because with a much smaller population, fewer resources, fewer people to do the work of these things. Yeah, and think about all the fences we'd have to put up. Yeah, I mean, just necessarily <laughs> people have to kind of rely on themselves a little yes. bit more and you have to kind of trust that people will have common sense. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I mean... Uh, S certainly this is kind of relevant uh, with the recent eruption. Um, you know, I mean, just having kind of seen some people uh, commenting publicly uh, that they were a little bit surprised that Iceland wasn't more prepared for this. Uh, and then, of course, the question is, you know, well, what more can one really do to be prepared? Yeah, uh, there's also like, sure, you can expect the volcanic eruption every now and then. You can also expect, you know, winter storms, uh, flash floods, uh, landslides. Uh, there's so much stuff to be prepared for, which is why we have a, why the police have a special department dedicated to, uh, the Department of Civil Protection is mostly dedicated to mm. natural disaster uh, preparedness. And, you know, you learn from every event that comes up, but you can't be prepared for anything at all times always. There, there isn't enough people in Iceland to do so. <laughs> uh so to kind of close out on, uh, this is um, a little bit of a joke, but also not really. Mm. Um, because, you know, something that I always think about is how a lot of these really major tourist sites, you know, yeah, you do unfortunately see people disrespecting fences and boundaries and, you know, trampling areas that they shouldn't be trampling. And, you know, with social media, I think that very often we all kind of want the same picture Mm -hmm. uh, we kind of have an expectation of what this place is supposed to look like. And it's not so much about, at least from my perspective, it's very often not about kind of having like an individual experience of this place, but of kind of recreating something that we've seen before. And so I think a possible solution mm -hmm. uh, to keep people within the fence is have uh, just like photo kiosks, you know, like like in like an amusement park, you can get your picture taken on a roller coaster. Mm -hmm. And I think that we need to reintroduce these. Uh, so, 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 so you can go to Deer Hole A or Lefto Park and you can just stand in a little box and you, you, like, you can get your Instagram picture and leave nature alone. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great idea. Um, you know, uh, I will say, because we've talked a lot about safety and that it is a very important part of the ranger's job. But another part of it, and perhaps a more enjoyable part of it, is just helping people enjoy the mm. nature. I mean, uh, when we were traveling with Dagur around Lauterberg, he kept pointing out, you know, uh, different birds. He told us that we, uh, which I didn't know that you could tell how old the puffins were from their beak. Yeah. He told us, you know, how he can differentiate the female and male fox calls. Um, told us about different trails, different uh, interesting parts that you know weren't visible from the from the main route. Um, and in Dirhole, since we mentioned the Instagram spot, you know they aren't trying to stop you from getting a great Instagram post. They are just trying to keep you safe while they do so. Like Guerun mentioned, they have a spot where you can take down the fence and you can take a safe and great Instagram picture with a with a hidden a perfect place for kiosk maybe <laughs> but uh, yeah they're trying to make uh, the area and the trip as joyful for visitors as they can 
Um, and, you know, pointing out, you know, uh, when I was in uh, Leofet, we spoke to the ranger there and, and asked her about hiking opportunities around the hut. And she pointed us in the right direction, told us where we could find some some uh, pretty flowers and a small hot spring that we can dip our toes in after our, our hike. And, and yeah, they're there to make your trip better as well, yep. to let you know, give you a little bit of insight. That's what every tourist wants, right? The local insight. Well, you know, and something that uh, I've heard jokingly called uh, the REI effect, and REI um, is a kind of North American outdoor uh, gear mm-hmm. uh, retailer. Okay. Um, and, you know, so the like the kind of explosion of some of these stores that sell outdoor gear in like the kind of late 90s, early 2000s, like really opened up nature for a, like like a large section of people that just wouldn't really have had access to these things. Right. And I okay. think that sometimes we forget uh, like how recent some things that we kind of take for granted are, I mean, just like Gore-Tex in uh, kind of um, rain and uh, like, like windbreaker jackets mm. and stuff like that. You know, I mean, up until the 90s and early 2000s, um, a lot of these things were really kind of like for professional mountaineers and like national geographic type uh, explorers and stuff. And it's really just been in the last 20, 30 years where like a certain kind of cheap, easily available mm. kind of re- like like relatively high quality gear has really kind of become available to a kind of mass audience. And, you know, so like obviously on the one hand, it's great that a lot of people get to see nature and go on hikes and things like this that they might not have really been able to safely do before. But mm-hmm. then, you know, of course, like the other side of that is with this explosion and like popularization of the outdoors and like more and more people hiking and camping that might not have like the kind of specialized knowledge that, um, you know, like a more mountaineering type guy, uh, or gal might have, um, you know, I mean, yeah, like you're inevitably going to run into these problems with safety and knowledge and all of this. Yeah, and just, you know, the increased traffic as well. I mean, we've seen it, uh, especially when the, when uh, the first in the first stages of the tourist boom here, um, uh, just delicate mountain trails that were only used by so and so many people weren't prepared for a whole mass of them. Um, and there were some trails that were pretty run down for a while. There have been some steps taken to, you know, build up infrastructure in the highlands. But the ranges are an important part of that. Um, like uh, like we mentioned, uh, when I was writing the article, I mean, Landverder quite literally means guardian of the land. Like that is their yeah. job. And the uh, thing about, you know, when you're standing uh, in the central highland, there's glacier on your left, glacier on your right, and a vast stretch of gray sand everywhere uh, you can, as as far as you can see. Um, it it looks like you can do pretty much whatever because there's no one there. But actually, the nature is very fragile. Yep. I mean, just imagine how much work it is to for one flower to bloom in a and and this temperature and these winter conditions, and also just the the sand and the rocks and the lava fields uh, are 
very fragile as well um and they don't handle the stress of so much traffic so that's another reason the rangers are there you know if they see someone if they see someone off-roading they will stop that immediately uh and if they see tracks left by someone who's driven off the road they will you know do their best to to fix it um you know they will introduce vegetation to old paths that are not uh in use anymore they will you know mend fences they will uh fix bridges they will do whatever they can to make sure that uh people stay in the trails and don't damage the nature around them it's it's a multifaceted job <laughs> <laughs> certainly yeah um well so to kind of close out on uh if uh we're kind of taking the place of the the landverder here mm-hmm. uh what are your kind of uh top tips for staying safe and enjoying yourself in the highland consult safetravel.is consult rangers the weather forecast and not just like a week before you go not just the day before you go but continuously over the course of your trip make sure you have uh the correct car if you're driving by car and the you know boots and outdoor gear if you're if you're hiking the weather can and will uh change like four times over the course of a day at least yes but also just do your best to sort of learn from the people there you know ask questions about the flora and the fauna ask about the birds and and depending on the season if you're in early season you will see you know chicks or fledglings learn to fly if you're in late spring you will see you know berries and mushrooms and stuff and and you know try to uh it's so much more enjoyable if you if you know what you're looking at and sort of what's around you mm. well i think that's a great note to end on and thank you again for sharing the piece thank you deep north is the official podcast of iceland review the oldest continuously running english language publication in iceland covering community nature and culture if you enjoyed listening please consider subscribing to iceland review at our website